Everybody, welcome to episode 112 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today, we are speaking with outdoor generalist Justin Pugh. He is a caver, climber, canyoneer, backpacker, hiker, off-roader, and previously an urban explorer. And on top of all of those things, he is also a filmmaker known for the short film First Descent, The Legend of Scott Sweeney. And if that name sounds familiar, he was on this podcast way back in episode number four. Scott Sweeney has established hundreds of canyons in the Death Valley area, and Justin Pugh made a film about him and those explorations. And on top of all of those things, Justin also works in rope access, which means that he is often hanging in a harness from wind turbines, from the roofs of stadiums and various other structures, helping either build or repair these things. I just named a slew of activities that Justin is involved in, and we discuss as many of those as we could fit into this podcast. So why don't you come along with me to the dark, dark Cobb Estate Trail in Altadena one night, where Justin and I recorded this episode. I think it's safe to say that a lot of you out there are coffee lovers. You probably brew something fresh every morning, or maybe you run to a local coffee shop or drive through on your way to work each morning. But have you ever taken the time to think about what is in your coffee or the other additives you add, like your coffee creamer? Well, Laird Superfood could help you up your coffee game with an entirely new coffee experience. With Laird, you'll get better ingredients, amazing taste, and functional benefits. All products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you are incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. Their coffees are made from all-natural, whole food ingredients, contain naturally occurring MCTs from coconut oil, have no artificial flavors, colors, or additives. And the Laird Superfood Creamers are crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code GOPODCAST at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. My name is Justin Pugh. I've been involved in various forms of outdoor recreation probably for about 13, 14 years is when I really got serious about it. And uh, some of my main activities are uh, canyoneering, rock climbing, do a bit of caving, and of course, you know, hiking, backpacking, and all that fun stuff. 13, 14 years or so you've been doing these things. I do know that you also do a variety of other things that you haven't mentioned, like four by four. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do have an affinity for uh, four-wheel drive, you know, when I have a rig that's actually running, which is most of the time, unfortunately, not happening right now. But yes, that's something that I also like to uh, dabble in a bit. Yeah, so you are one of these multifaceted outdoor people, and you say... 
13, 14 years and you're not 15 or 16 years old. You're a bit older than that. So there must be a time in your life when you came to those things. So let's discuss how you went from little bitty Justin Pugh to the big manly Justin Pugh that sits in front of me right now here in the dark in the haunted forest. It's it's kind of funny. I grew up in Kentucky. I spent a little bit of my young childhood life in Ohio. I don't really have too many memories of Ohio, but I, I grew up in Kentucky. You know, that's a big mecca for caving, which is one of my, I guess you could call that an outdoor interest, even though it's kind of subterranean. Uh, <laughs> it's well, like weirdly indoor in its own way. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, its own form of indoor and outdoor recreation. Uh, But, you know, I've never been caving in Kentucky. Growing up, I didn't really do much outside. I mean, I would play outside with my brothers and sisters, but we didn't really do anything outside aside from just, I don't know, playing baseball in the backyard. Our idea of camping uh, with my dad was to pitch a tent in the backyard and have a campfire and sleep in the tent, which made for some really fun memories as a kid. But, you know, once I got out of my uh, childhood years, I never really went back to camping at all until much later in my adult life uh, when I moved out to California. Oddly enough, the thing that got me into the outdoors to the level that I'm involved in it now is a fun little hobby that I, I don't do it too much, but I still will occasionally go urban exploring. And for those are, that are unfamiliar, that is basically uh, exploring any kind of abandoned man-made infrastructure. So uh, buildings and, I don't know, tunnels and theme parks and whatever else is sort of in the area. I had lived in Florida. I went to school in Florida and I kind of got bit by this weird little hobby of just finding old abandoned places that weren't in use anymore and I met some friends and we would just go out and we would find places to explore. We got into all sorts of stuff, Um, some old theme parks and power plants and all kind of weird buildings and abandoned hospitals and yeah I really got into that pretty hard and then I moved out to California to work in the film industry and then uh, I kept doing that in California but when I moved out here after a little while I found out that there were like abandoned mining camps and ghost towns and abandoned mines to go exploring and I thought that would just be the absolute coolest thing so we planned a trip with some friends that I had made in LA to just go out to the desert and explore some old mining camps and that was my first actual camping trip aside from just sleeping in the tent in my backyard as a kid and that was such an amazing trip. I had really never spent time in the desert before that trip. And that really opened my eyes and impacted me in a deep way. And from then, I just slowly started getting into more out- outdoor activities like hiking. And then I got into climbing. I really got into to caving because I wanted to go out and explore those abandoned mines. So that got me connected to people in the SoCal Grotto. Then I learned caving skills, and that's where I learned my on-rope techniques uh, was through caving. Um, and then from there, I went into canyoneering and and broadened out from there. It's interesting that you mentioned the urban exploration. You said this was in Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. It was when I was in college in yeah. Florida. So we're talking college years. I think this is maybe one of those kind of common conduits for people who aren't necessarily in an area with the sort of opportunities that, say, like L.A. has, which is 
oh, there's all this old abandoned shit. Don't we want to know what's in there? And then there's a part of it where you feel like you're not supposed to be there probably, right? So you really want to be there because you're not supposed to be there. Because I remember the same thing like at LSU and various places in Louisiana where it's, oh, there's this old area on campus that you're not supposed to go into. It's weird. Let's go check it out. But what I find particularly interesting is that once you came to L.A., there was still a part of that in you because what you got drawn to were mines and all these other abandoned man-made, you know, structures. Was it just other college kids that you met who were already doing that? Or were, or did you instigate this exploration of these places? Like, how did you find out about what places to go to? This was the mid-2000s, and Facebook might have been around in its very infantile state. Um, but nobody was on Facebook. There wasn't nearly the social media platforms that are in existence now. So I would, f- I found like urban exploring specific websites and you'd have to like sign on with the username and sometimes people wouldn't let you in because I don't know, I guess what we thought was doing was so illegal and so important <laughs> that it had to be the secret society. <laughs> so there were gatekeepers. Oh yeah, definitely gatekeepers and strong opinions, just like in canyoneering. It's great. How did you endear yourself to these gatekeepers? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just doing the same thing I did with canyoneering, I guess. Just show up to rendezvous because every so often people would be like, hey, let's get together and go explore something. And I just show up to something and shake a few hands and find some places. And then you get talking to people and they're like, oh, yeah, well, I've got, have you seen this spot? Have you seen this place? And like, yeah, yeah, have you seen this place over here in my part of town? They're like, no, I don't know about that. And so then you start exchanging locations. I mean, which is basically what happens a lot in the canyoneering community with exchanging canyons. And But now, I mean, you have everything more in centralized databases like in RopeWiki and things like that. Uh, but that's really, I mean, there's not that much of a difference between how I started urban exploring and then how people kind of exchange information on uh, on canyoneering. All you just basically remove the main platforms that we have now. But I mean, it was basically, you know, I mean, we haven't seen guidebooks for canyoneering, at least not to my knowledge, uh, until like the last, I don't know, few years, we've started to get some canyoneering guidebooks. So it's kind of been the same, at least that was my experience with it, with um, with urban exploring. But yeah, uh, I, in the same fashion that I kind of made a little bit of a, a community for that in Florida, I kind of made a small community for that in L.A., just you know exploring places and that and it didn't take me too long as i said to just find some of these places i found really interesting out in the desert but once i once i started going outside and underground uh the urban exploration kind of fell off pretty quickly (laughs) just because it's like well i can i can i can go caving i can go hiking i can go rock climbing and that kind of satisfied that that interest for adventure in a deeper way than it was just to um, explore man-made locations. So at this point in time, now, you've got like proper training and a variety of different skills and ropes and various other things. You've, you've got a lot more experience. We're currently in the dark wearing headlamps. We have proper gear on. But I'm pretty sure when you were doing this urban exploration, you didn't know any of that stuff yet. What did you look like in college showing up to these places? What did you bring with you? Are we talking flashlight and like Ugg boots? What were you, what were you doing when you were showing up at these uh, sites? We're talking about urban exploring, right? And not, uh, not outdoor adventures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, still, we're still talking urban exploration right here. Just basically a flashlight, my camera, 
and with the tripod. And yeah, that's what got me started. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty pared down. Uh, photography was a real big part of my urban exploring. Uh, that was a really interesting way for me to kind of explore you know, an artistic skill as well as to, to take pictures of the places that, that we were going. And a lot of times we were going to places in the dark. So you'd have to do long exposures and more time-lapse kind of uh, photography techniques, which now are really easy and they're really kind of passe with all the access we have, everything that an iPhone can do. But 15 years ago or so, with just like a DSLR, you'd really have to learn all the functions of a camera to really take a decent picture. Are there any exciting occurrences, any run-ins with police, any terrifying moments with supernatural creatures? Or was it mostly what you expect, which is you go somewhere you shouldn't be in the dark, worst case scenario, you run into an angry homeless person and run away? Okay, so I have two stories for you. (laughs) First of which, it was the middle of the night. I had driven with a friend of mine. This is when I still lived in Florida, so this is probably around... 2005 or so. We had driven a few hours to this place. Basically, it had a bunch of ruins of hospital buildings that were built back in the 1800s. And so uh, we snuck into one of these buildings through the basement. Then we found out that the basement section that we had gone into didn't connect with the rest of the hospital. And now these are everything that you would think of. I mean, if you think of an abandoned insane asylum, that actually, I maybe failed to mention that. These were like, (laughs) this was an abandoned mental hospital from the 1800s. And it had been sitting in disrepair for decades. So picture that. And it's probably exactly what it is that you're picturing in your mind right now. So uh, we're in the basement of this building. It's the middle of the night. And we find out that the section of basement doesn't directly connect to the rest of the hospital that we want to get into. But what does connect is a steam tunnel that we have to climb up into. (laughs) So we go through in through the basement, duck walk through a steam tunnel, and then crawl out the other opening on the other side into another stairwell, go up the stairwell, and now we're in this abandoned mental hospital from the 1800s in the middle of the night and it's everything that you would picture it to be Uh, except for the fact that nothing happens and there are no ghosts and nothing (laughs) creepy not even a homeless person not even a homeless person because there's a security guard that drive that was driving around we had to dodge him (laughs) to sneak into the building which we were able to successfully do we walked around for a little bit uh we got a little worried that somebody was going to see our flashlights it's a great idea when you're like let's go to this abandoned hospital in the middle of the night and then you go to the abandoned hospital and you're like wait I need my flashlight to walk around this place. Of course somebody's going to see me. We left after a little bit, but um, yeah, it was fun. It was cool. It really wasn't that creepy and nothing happened. All right. So that's story number one. So story number two going to be as anticlimactic. So I was with this group of people. (laughs) This was out in California. We were exploring this location that was pretty high risk. Okay. So this was like federal property that we were trespassing on and we didn't think it was that big of a deal because there was a huge group of people like two weeks before that just walked into this place and it was fine there's a huge gaping hole in the fence and we're like ah you know if this was like a a tightened up perimeter and it was really had to you know if you had to 
make more of an effort to get in if you had to maybe like cut a gate or something which was not something that we ever did it's just like well if the access is open you know if there's a hole in the fence or if there's if, if you can easily get into it then we'll do that but we never broke anything to get into places because that was just kind of against our ethos so this was a really great spot so i go back a couple weeks later and there's like five of us and we just walk in through the gate and you have to climb over like, you know, like a, a, a railroad track. There was a train that was that was kind of parked there. And then we're in this really cool facility and walking around and uh, we hear this noise and we turn around and look back at the gate. And to our horror, there was a whole line of police cars lined <laughs> oh, up at crap. the gate with their yellow lights on. And there's this guy unlocking the gate. And we're like, what what the fuck so then we're like okay well we have we have a decision to make do we either run maybe we'll get away or maybe we could make it a lot worse for ourselves or if you know do we just do we want to stay put so and we were right out in the open just right out in the open um it was this big facility with all these towers and we were just right in the middle of the open and so we just decided to just hang out and uh you know not make a run for it so of course they 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 drove in they found us within like 30 seconds. They frisked us. They split us up, asked us all these questions. <laughs> and, and it was great. We did didn't you really get the have good to. good cop or the bad cop? I, I think we all got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. Like when we go out on trips like this, we would always try to put ourselves in the scenario of, you know, well, we're just here to take pictures. Look, here are our cameras. You know, we never went out dressed in like black clothing, trying to look like ninjas or anything like that. We would try to dress as inconspicuously as possible. A trick that I learned was like you'd wear like a fedora or something like that. Because, you know, you see some guy like walk out of an abandoned building with a camera and a fedora. You're not going to be like, this guy is here to sell drugs and break things. Like you're like probably like, <laughs> who is this guy? Anyway. So no, you just think um, he's a blues musician. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know if it really did anything, if it helped at all, but I don't know. It was maybe some kind of a placebo yeah, for my own brain. When I asked you earlier about the items you would bring with you, you left out the fedora. Well, you know, I Seems have like to hold an important on to... item. <laughs> Looking back, I don't think it was really that important. <laughs> yeah, so uh yeah, but all they were like, What are you doing here? We're like, We're just here taking pictures. Like at this place, we're like, Yeah, there's this it was like this oil refinery looking place so it was it was to us it looked really cool i think anybody walking through that place would be like man this is a really cool place so uh we they were pretty confused by that but um you know we all had the same story and we seemed pretty innocent so they let all of us go with a warning Uh, we could have gotten a lot of trouble for that we could have gotten in a whole lot of trouble but fortunately we were just let go with a warning so that was good yeah i think that's often um what happens right i feel like just a couple weeks ago i was in an experience where uh it could have turned into (laughs) uh something much more involved involving perhaps say homeland security but uh luckily it didn't go that direction (laughs) (laughs) yeah same with this yeah this it could have been uh this could have been a homeland security issue pretty quickly Thankfully, it wasn't. So, you know, that's just the that's just the that's just what happens when you um, access areas that are difficult to access, which, you know, is still what I'm doing at this point in my life in a little bit of a different form than urban exploring. Still getting into areas that are kind of difficult to access, and so when you do that, you can potentially open some kind of like Pandora's box with 
well, you know, who owns this land that we need to get into? Can we get proper permission to? A lot of it, it just falls on public land. So a lot of it is pretty easy. Most outdoor activities that I do, it's all on public lands. And so access is, is, is pretty easy. Unless you're trying to do something like dodge a permit or something like that, which which you shouldn't do, and I don't I don't do that, and I don't encourage people to do it either. Yeah. Also, you're a little bit older now, and they're probably less forgiving of um, you breaking laws than they maybe were when you were 19, 20 years old. Yeah, I feel when you're in your 20s, uh, you could probably get away with a little bit more stuff. So you're a southern boy like me. You grew up in Kentucky. You head to Florida to was it to go to film school or where, yeah yeah, yeah went to, to go film to film school, school. yep. And then you decided to take the big trip out to Los Angeles to pursue the film industry, correct? Yep. That's what brought me out here. What did that move look like for you? Because for me, that move was a hell of an experience and led to like probably two of the worst years of my life immediately after that. And then things improved. Uh, hopefully things went a little better for you. You know, it's been it's been an interesting road. It's kind of taken me all over the place. I've had mixed results as far as the film career goes but um, what's been most rewarding for me are the people that I've met and the uh, outdoor activities not just the the activities but the lifestyle that I've kind of built for myself uh, over the years that's been the, the the real life-changing thing for me with with making that move to to come out west so you know I'm, I moved out here for similar reasons to chase animation chase chase film industry chase all that stuff and kind of the surprise to me is that instead I was going to find this big outdoor community and all these different activities that many of which I didn't even know existed at the moment was any of that on your radar when you made it out here or was your experience similar where it just kind of broadsided you and you found out, oh, I actually really like this stuff that I didn't know was available to me? Uh, my experience was very similar to yours. I didn't really know about this stuff. I mean, I think I had been to a climbing gym once before I had moved out here. And I found that experience enjoyable. I was like, yeah, I'd like to go back to a climbing gym, but it wasn't anything that was really high on my radar until I started to get a taste of just being outside and being in the mountains. Over time, that really shifted a lot of things for me. Yeah. Do you remember what was the first experience or the first group you met that kind of brought you into something that kind of led to the domino cascade that would lead to everything else? You'll probably notice a theme with myself and other people you've had on the podcast, but um, getting connected to people in the SoCal Caving Grotto was an important step for me, uh, just because that helped me get some of the more technical training and rope work that really became the foundation for uh, a lot of activities that I would move forward with. There were people that were actually in the urban exploring community as well that were kind of in the caving community as well. There's not that many of us. There's like two or three of us. But that's how I found the SoCal Grotto was through urban exploring, and uh, which led to exploring mines, which connected me to the SoCal Grotto. So then your big introduction out here ends up being through the caving grotto. And for people listening, I figure most people listening probably know by now, if you don't know what a grotto is, it's basically a caving group where different people who are interested in caving get together on a regular basis and they help make sure they have proper training because as I'm sure you can verify, unlike with a lot of other outdoor pursuits, caving, it is very important that everyone in your team really knows what they're doing and has the proper training. Whereas as you might know, sometimes with canyoneering, climbing, other things that we do, sometimes we show up and 
people aren't quite as well trained as capers are. Yeah, I feel myself lucky that I got connected with the SoCal Grotto because they do a really good job training you for the places that you will be going to. So it's great to know how to get into a place and then actually successfully egress from said place as well and to just be a contributing member of a team. I can always notice a little bit of a difference if I'm in a group of, say, if I'm canyoneering uh, with some friends. The people in that group who are cavers, I feel that I have a little bit of a different connection. I love showing up to do a canyon with cavers. They all have their ascending device on their chest ready to go. I know that they've been practicing a variety of things in the near past, and I don't ever have to worry about if something goes wrong, whether they're going to know what to do or not. I would highly recommend many people to hang out with cavers because they know their shit. Uh, Yeah, especially if you are... um especially if you're in the canyoneering community. I think those are very complementary skills to each other. A big foundational skill for caving is to ascend a rope. That's like caving 101. And I feel if you go in canyoneering circles, that is a, like, you don't get to that for a while. You know, you you might be taught to ascend with prussics, or maybe this is some way to ascend an emergency situation. But if you come at it as a caver, that is a foundational skill. If you're in a canyon and with some cavers and the rope gets stuck or somebody leaves something up top or if any other sort of situation happens, you're generally in good hands with people who have practiced their skills and just have a wide tool base of solutions to pull from. So the grotto you're in, you know, I know a lot of people in that grotto also. Some of them have been on this show before. I know that a number of them have other interests outside of caving. So was that how you got connected to your other pursuits? Is Did you start at the grotto and then kind of transition out into climbing and canyoneering and backpacking and everything else? Some of those I developed separately from that community. You know, I got into urban exploration and then which got me into exploring mines, which got me connected to the caving community, which got me into canyoneering. And if I were to identify as any sort of outdoor personality per se, I'd probably go with canyoneering just because that is what I probably do most often. I mean, I've spent a lot of time rock climbing as well, and I kind of developed that pursuit kind of separate from that community. Just through friends that I had through other circles, uh, we would go hiking together. We would just go on car camping trips. Uh, Some of us would go climbing. So um, it's just kind of nice to just kind of have not have all my eggs in one basket per se when it comes to an outdoor community. Uh, to just kind of have different sorts of trips which you can take with different sorts of people and then you can kind of cross-mingle some of those communities as well and, you know, introduce friends to each other and, and, and that's another aspect about it that I really like too is just meeting different people, not just in one community but spread across different communities as well. So one of the things in the canyoneering community that I know you have more experience with than a lot of other people is doing canyons in Death Valley. We're kind of split in the canyon community, right? You've got the people who really love water. You've got the people who love dry stuff. And amongst those two groups of people, most of them don't go to Death Valley on a regular basis. And then there's a small subset who do go to Death Valley, one of which we're going to get to later you made a movie about. So before we get to that, let's talk about what draws you specifically to those Death Valley canyons and how you started exploring those. This chapter kind of is a continuation of kind of my progression through the outdoors, which is, and you 
talked about it earlier, which was, you know, off-roading and four-wheel drive, which I which I do from time to time. One of the main inspirations for me to do that was to just drive out in the desert to explore mines and ghost towns, and that's what got me into, into off-roading. So uh, years ago, I guess it was probably about 12 years ago now, was the first time I went to Death Valley. It was just an off-roading trip to go explore mining camps. And this is before I started canyoneering. I didn't even really know what canyoneering was at the time. I had been doing some rock climbing at that time, but it was just mainly climbing in the gym. And I uh, just rounded up some friends from work. We went out for a few nights out to Death Valley. And to this day, that first trip to Death Valley is one of the most fun trips I'd ever been on. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I didn't even know how to air down my tires on my four-wheel drive. I just didn't really know anything. So I learned a lot, had a really great trip. It was it was great. Just really fell in love with with that with that park. A couple years after that, as I started to get into canyoneering, I found out that there were canyons to be had there. So I was like, well, that's great. I already love that park. So I just started making trips out there to do canyoneering and learning the skill sets that are needed to get through the canyons out there. Yeah, so tell us how Death Valley canyons differ from other types of canyons, because they are unique. Death Valley is unique on uh, on a lot of different levels, just as a park, but also how the canyoneering works. The vast majority of that park is wilderness. You can drive around through, you know, in your car to a few destinations on a paved road. Yeah, the experience in Death Valley is a little different than some of the other national parks that you'll have in California, like Yosemite or Joshua Tree. You'll spend a lot of time in the car. A lot of it is just stuff on paved roads, but if you can get off the beaten path and do canyoneering or do some off-roading, then that really opens up the experience of the park a lot more. But it's common. I've met a lot of people. They think that that Death Valley is maybe one of the more boring parks, that maybe there's not as much to be had there. That's all just a matter of opinion, of course. I mean, some people are going to like certain destinations more than others. But I like Death Valley a lot just because it is it's a pretty wild place. And when you're going to talk about the canyoneering aspects of it, um, you have these mountains that are very high, right next to these valley floors that are quite low. So one of the most popular areas for canyoneering in Death Valley, which is the Black Range, you have 5,000-foot peaks, which are right next to Badwater Basin, which is almost 300 feet below sea level. So in the course of a few miles, you have these canyons that just plummet basically like, I don't know, (laughs) more than a mile in elevation. They're very long days and very long canyons. It's known for very long approaches, canyons with many drops. You are not allowed to place bolts. It's mostly naturally built anchors in an environment that is really mean to anchors and really destructive to webbing. Death Valley is just kind of, would you agree it just feels huge in a way that some places don't? Like when you go into the Death Valley canyons, they just feel really large in a, in a sense? Yeah, I feel that's kind of on point with the experience of that park overall as a whole. That is actually the largest national park in the lower 48. So outside Alaska, that is the largest national park. It's about roughly the size of the state of Connecticut. And it's mostly just desolate wilderness with a few roads that go through it. So yeah, I feel that the canyons very much, uh, for the most part, are a reflection of that. Everything about it 
is big. The approaches are big. The canyons are long. The a lot of the drops are are big. You'll usually have a couple 200 foot drops in a canyon in Death Valley. A lot of times the drops are a lot higher than that, and then you need well, more of a specialized rope length. So uh, then it becomes oh well, who has a 300 foot rope? Who has a 400 foot rope? Or even sometimes you might even need a 600-foot rope for some of the canyons that you're doing out there. And they can be extremely committing, so it's very easy to get yourself into trouble if you don't come prepared. Uh, it's so associated with canyoneering in Death Valley is Scott Sweeney. For people listening, maybe remember from an early episode of this show. Tell us about Scott Sweeney a little bit, how you met him, and why you decided you wanted to make a movie about him. As I went down the path of my interest with doing canyons in Death Valley, I just kept hearing the name Scott Sweeney. Oh, you like Death Valley? You should talk to Scott Sweeney. And, you know, a, a couple people told me that. And, you know, this happened a few times. I was just, actually, this happened on one specific trip. I was with a couple of grotto friends, and we were just doing some canyons. Somebody would say something about Scott Sweeney and it was just and it would just be the craziest thing I would ever hear like Scott Sweeney did this and I was like what's that and then he'd be like no like he did this and it would be something like I don't know he taught himself how to go cave diving or so many great Scott Sweeney stories I can't even he dived down into a pond at 17 years old while he was collecting rattlesnakes so he could get a beaver to take yes. home as a pet. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scott Sweeney dove into a swamp to catch a beaver after he had caught a whole bag full of water moccasin snakes and caught a beaver. And he, yeah, and he, then he has peddled uh, a man-made submarine. He has been the man the manpower literally of a submarine, the the human engine. He would uh, he would win inline speed skating competitions on recreational skates that he I don't know bought at Walmart or something like that. He decided to teach himself to go rock climbing and uh, took the rope from his boat and used that as his climbing rope and also had no education or no training whatsoever in regards to the sport. Yeah, should we continue? We I can, mean, we can. We can. I mean, this is a long road. We can keep going down. There's plenty of information on the internet. Uh, with all sorts of these jokes on it, right? So how'd you so how'd you come along to meet this guy? I mean, obviously people are telling you you need to talk to him. So is that what happened? Well, yeah. It's going back to I was on a specific trip in Death Valley, and of course at this point, you know, Scott's name had come up a few times, and so one of my friends had done some first ascents with Scott in Death Valley, and he would say just some absurd thing about this guy, just some absurd shit, like we were just talking about. And then my other friend would be like, Justin, you should make a documentary about Scott. And then we would laugh, and then we'd get a couple more rappels down into the canyon. And then a similar thing would happen. It, it happened at the, throughout the weekend. It happened a few times, and it just got to a point where I just kept hearing just all this absurd shit about this guy. And I was like, you know what? I am going to make a documentary about this guy. I hadn't even met this dude yet, and I already decided. I'm like, I'm going to just make a documentary about him because I mean, why not? Shortly after that, you know, I got a few things kind of arranged on my end and just kind of say, okay, can I actually take on a project? And I decided that I could. And so I reached out to Scott to see if he was interested. And he was. So then, yeah, we started making trips out to Death Valley to do First Ascents and film them for the film that would become First Ascent, The Legend of Scott Sweeney. I don't believe I knew that you didn't know Scott prior to deciding to make the documentary. I mean, I felt like I knew Scott. <laughs> I had heard so much right, about right. him. You emailed him? Is that what you did? Is that how you asked him to do it? Nobody, what, what nobody emails to, Scott. Right, if you know yeah, anything yeah. about Scott, you reach out to him <laughs> through Facebook. 
and he'll always get back to you. He'll always get back to you. And most of the time, it'll be a thumbs up it'll emoji. Most, it'll usually be a thumbs up. Yeah. So I just sent him a message on Facebook, and then he responded pretty favorably. And then I called him up on the phone, and you know, and we talked about it. And I explained to him a little bit about what it was that I wanted to do. He pretty quickly agreed, and we went from there. So, so did you send him a Facebook Messenger message that said, "Hey, I want to make a movie about you," and he replied with a thumbs up emoji? Is that what happened? I don't remember really what my first <laughs> message was to him. I think it's probably something along the lines of, hey, I want to talk to you about, you know, some of your projects in Death Valley or something like that. So what was that first meeting like? Was it to go out and do a canyon together or did you guys get together beforehand? I, knowing Scott, I feel like what happened is he was like, oh, yeah, sure. You can make a movie about me. Um, meet me here and I'll give you 300 feet of rope to carry. And that, that's what I feel like probably happened. Is that what happened? It's not quite as exciting as that. Uh, I met up with him at a restaurant out in the valley, explained to him a little more of you know what what I wanted to do what it would really entail because if you don't have an idea of really what kind of goes into making a film some of the concessions and provisions that you need to make to the individuals who will be following you around with cameras it it really changes the dynamic of how things are happening when you're spending time in the mountains. I mean, it changes the dynamic of whatever it is happening, but for sure, if you're unaffiliated with how projects are shot, it really alters that experience a bit if you're actually going to have a successful end product. So part of it was to kind of explain to him what it was that I wanted to do and how that would kind of, uh, like what, what I would kind of need from him for that to happen and to just make sure that it was going to be a good fit. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what the plan was, why you wanted to make the movie in particular, what the plan was, and then what the reality was when you tried to enact that plan. Yeah, the plan basically was, you know, well, we're just going to we'll follow you and we're just going to film a lot of stuff and we're probably going to have to film everything and we're probably going to have to ask you to redo some things. We're going to probably need you to um, work with us to get footage on the approach hike and, and everything. And he was like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. And of course, is you know, once we get out there, all that goes completely out the window. Uh, Scott doesn't like doing anything twice. So we started doing trips with him. We would get kind of just the footage that we that we could get. We would plan it out as best we could, but it's just really difficult. Just shooting adventure films is is pretty difficult because you are kind of at the mercy of some of the things that that are happening and everything that is happening usually has to happen on a time frame. So uh, if you put too much time into filming, then that's really going to affect how long your day is going to be in, in finishing a canyon. So pretty quickly I learned that what I needed to do was to just make a lot of trips out there and to just film what I can and start putting the footage together at some point start filling in gaps and then which would mean going out on more trips again but Scott was great on camera we started off with with just filming interviews and then from there we just went out and followed him through canyons yeah one of the disadvantages you had too is that you were following him on first descents so you're following him on establishing canyons that haven't been documented before in Death Valley. So you're not 100% sure of what's ahead, how long your day is going to be, how many drops are going to be. And so you can't do things like, oh, I know when we get here, we're going to have this great opportunity. So I'm going to rig a rope on the side. I'm going to hang on that. I'm going to get all this amazing footage. You kind of had to be part of the team, I assume, 
but then also try to figure out how to shoot what was going on as best you could and capture what was happening, but without being able to plan for what was going to be immediately next. Yeah, that was a that was a big part of it. You know, when I would go out on these on these trips with uh, with Scott, and it would be like a rotating a rotating lineup of other canyoneers who would be joining him. It was always like, okay, well, these are the shots that we need to get. And it usually was like, we need big shots from a head wall. We need footage of a big drop for the climax section of the film. Because you can't really have a film about, you know, this guy doing these big canyons in Death Valley and not be able to end it on a high note. Death Valley is known for its big drops, and Scott specifically is known for doing big drop canyons in death valley we would never know what our biggest drop was going to be and scott hated repeating canyons like it was so difficult i think i got him to i got him to repeat one canyon and it was a short one (laughs) for some of the footage yeah that that was difficult but also we would explain to people like look we're going to need to do some rigging uh, we're going to need to to rig a different line for a camera to be able to film some of these drops. Scott was willing to do that. Other people were, were willing to do that. But generally, that was just a one-time thing per outing. So we would have to get to a drop and then just be like, well, okay, is this the drop that we want to rig the extra rope from because it's going to take a lot of time. Once we do this and then we, we pack all this stuff up, pull the ropes, nobody's going to want to do this again today. <laughs> We're gonna to have to do. We're gonna to have to wait for another canyon to to film the footage this way. So it was a little tedious in that regards. But over time, over enough trips, we were able to get the footage that we needed. And was Scott basically just contacting you periodically and saying, "Hey, I think this might be a good one to shoot," or were you just going along as much as you could on any trip you could get on? It was a little bit of both. Scott would be like, "Well, you know, I'm looking at this section here. It looks like." There's some good opportunities for some big drops here that we could possibly film. And, you know, I'd go out there with my camera and haul it all the way up the mountain. And, you know, I would usually get get some good footage. I would generally be able to get some good footage. And then, as I said, over time, just have enough to kind of piece everything together. Do you have a sense how many canyon descents you've, you shot with him? I want to say probably about seven or eight off the top of my head. I've actually never sat down and counted, but it's... It's more than a handful. Oh, so a number, but not like a ridiculous number. You didn't have to go out there 40 times. Or no, no, not quite. It's difficult doing these canyons with camera gear. You know, I'd have to I'd explain to the group that, okay, well, I'm not carrying any rope. I'm carrying a camera. Um, so I'm not going to be able to help rig anchors. I'm going to be filming the whole time. I'm not going to be able to help with rope work. I'm not going to help with carrying any rope or anything like that. And the main disadvantage that puts you at when you are a cameraman for a group outing like that is, you know, whenever people stop to take a break, you pull out your camera and you're filming. You're filming something. You're going up to somebody and you're asking them questions. You're filming b-roll of the mountains it's really one of the best opportunities is when the group is finally stopped (laughs) and then you really want to put their camera away first and be the first one gone so then you can start getting footage of people passing you because then once people pass you then now you're behind the group and then you have to catch up again so it's a pretty exhausting way to film you know, for a few of the canyons, I had uh, one of my friends, Francis Butler, was with me on a few of those first canyons, and he helped me out a lot getting uh, just a lot of footage, so we were able to, to capture a lot more. But it was also kind of difficult to find volunteers to be willing to lug camera up a 5,000 vertical foot approach to film a canyoneering first descent. So most of the time you were shooting yourself, you did not have a crew beyond yourself, right? 
So tell us some of the technical aspects. What was your what was your camera set up? What was your audio set up? Yeah, it was a little bit on the gorilla side. Uh, I just basically had a shotgun mic on the camera. I had a small form factor for it. Uh, I was using DSLRs, so 5D Mark III was a popular camera at that point. So we shot some footage on that camera. We shot a lot of it on the Sony A7 cameras. Those were great once we got into like some night sections because those were really good with with low light. And we filmed most of it in 1080p uh, just because, you know, it was just a small operation. Dealing with 4K footage at that point would have just been a lot more complicated to get an offline edit and relink everything. It was just it was it's just a little bit more bandwidth than what I had the capacity for. So we shot everything uh, in 1080 did, as I said, we did uh, interviews. We did interviews with Scott. Um, we did interviews with people who know Scott. Did uh, interviews with uh, his daughter and other people that, you know, have gone out on a bunch of trips with Scott and tried to get as many stories as we could. Going back to what you were saying about some of the camera setups, the audio, I just, I wasn't able to do any mics on everybody just because it was just, it's just kind of too much going on. Yeah, it was just a little bit more than what I could, than what I could pull off by myself. And honestly, in most, in most circumstances, you probably wouldn't have needed it. More than likely, what's most important is what Scott would be saying or whoever is on camera that the mic is pointed at. Uh, What was your lens strategy? For instance, I know you couldn't be carrying a whole bunch of prime lenses and swapping lenses constantly. So did you stick with like one particular zoom lens? Did you have a couple different uh, lens options with you? What'd you do for that? Yeah. So when I was going and filming with Francis, uh, we were able to have two different focal lengths. So the whole film was shot on zoom lenses everything out in death valley was shot on zoom lenses francis would have like a 16 to 35 and i would have like a 24 to 70 and one of us might be carrying a 70 to 200 Uh, we didn't use the 70 to 200 too many times there actually might have been a good handful of trips where we didn't even take the 70 to 200 just because we knew we needed more landscape shots and we weren't going to be shooting on anything that tight now once we started to shoot more footage and I needed to fill in gaps and find bigger drops to film. Then I started carrying a 70 to 200 and started using it more often because I knew that I would want telephoto lens shots of him doing a big drop. So that came into play a little bit more. But for the most part, it was just zoom lenses, 16 to 35 and 24 to 70. And once you start to go that long, you can run into the danger of too much shake. So were you carrying a monopod with you? Or were you carrying a tripod? Were you doing anything to stabilize? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean I, I wasn't carrying anything like that just because I needed what could really easily fit into a backpack with the rest of my canyoneering gear and food and water. I tried a tripod a, a couple times and it didn't really wasn't as useful as I thought it would be. So a lot of times I would just find like some rocks to maybe stabilize a shot, just operate the shot as, as best I could. So did you begin the editing process while you were shooting and then try to start piecing picture together as you went? Or did you acquire a bunch of footage first and then try to find your story from there? It was a bit of a combination of that. Uh, I started kind of putting together some rough edits as we were shooting after a certain point I, I, I kind of knew I knew to a degree what the direction was that I was going to take the film but the footage that we were getting at and the that we were getting the film and then the stories that we were getting from people were kind of informing us as far as what the direction to take for the film yeah we started after a few canyoneering trips we started kind of piecing together like a rough cut for the film and just kind of went from there so we would 
film and then edit and then film and then edit. But we really got into the editing process once we were probably about three-fourths of the way filmed. So something I know always happens to me with projects like this or any sort of personal projects is you have kind of a rough production schedule in your head in the beginning, which balloons into something far larger than that. And however long you calculate that you're going to spend on the project goes up two, three, four, five times. Did you have that experience with this? Like what, what did you go in expecting? How much time did you expect it to take to put this together from the beginning? And then what was the reality? Oh man. Uh, I was thinking that it'd probably be about maybe like a 20 minute film and wound up being 30 minutes. It was a lot more complicated to edit. It was about as difficult to shoot as I thought it would be. Did wind up having to make more trips to Death Valley than I thought. The interviews, I needed a couple more interviews than than what I thought that I needed. The main aspect to that was the amount of time to edit it wound up being probably about double the effort that that I thought it would it would take and I thought it would be about maybe an 18 to 20 minute film I wanted something that was a little bit more programmable friendly for for film festivals it just wound up kind of needing to be 30 minutes I mean it's if if I were to take it down from that then it it felt like it was going to be too short it just it just was the length that it felt that it needed to be so what was the timeline when did you when did you show up and shoot your first frame and when did you have a final cut I started filming oh man I think I, I started filming in 2016 finished filming in I think it was probably about 2017 is when I like when I finally got the last of my footage. This was not me going out there every single week and getting all this footage. I would go out there and then a few weeks later I would get some more footage and then a few weeks later I'd go on another trip and then it would be the end of the season and then I'd have to wait till next season and do a few more trips. So it was probably about maybe two and a half seasons of canyoneering to get all the footage for the Death Valley stuff. Started filming 2016, got the last of my footage 2017 uh, at some point. I finally had it done, done 2019. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. 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 2019. And that's still, I think back, I'm like, wow, it's 2023 now. It's That's been done for four years. But there are also various, various points of actually getting the film done. So it was like, okay, well, the film is done enough for it to be submitted to film festivals. Okay. Now the the film is done enough for me to actually give it like a proper screening, right? Now, okay, now all like the graphics and all these little things that I need to actually change and tweak, get the sound dialed in a little bit more, get all the clearance for the music that I used and all that stuff. And so just the process of me finishing the film, I mean, that probably took close to, uh, that might have taken close to a year and that was me just kind of working by myself, doing a lot of that. Uh, my friend Francis really came through in a few ways, and in, in big ways, uh, towards the end to kind of help me get it finished, colored, and everything. But but a lot of that stuff was on me to uh, to just tie up all those to tie up all those loose ends. Yeah, where was the premiere? Uh, we premiered the film at LA Center Studios in downtown Los Angeles. And so was that a screening you put together or was that at a festival? No, that was a that was a screening that I put together. Um, I like had a some friends and family kind of screening. Uh, I invited I invited everybody. If you weren't invited, I apologize. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when I saw it. I'm uh, to I don't think you were at that. I don't think you were at that screening. No, but I, I know that, that I had. I feel I had kind of. I had proliferated the canyoneering community with, "Hey, like we're gonna 
premiere this film, and these are the dates, but I don't think you're at that first screening. I saw it at the Grotto when you screened it at the Grotto. Yeah. That's where I saw it. Yeah, that was the first time I saw it. Yeah. Um, so how was the premiere? The what premiere was, was, was good. It? We had a little over 100 people show up for it, which okay, that for is a, good. a tiny film that I yeah, it's quite good. cut myself and made myself, that's that's a pretty good turnout. And uh, yeah, it was great. Scott's daughter drove up from San Diego. I think some of his other family members had flown in for it, which was was just really nice. Yeah, there was a good showing from people in the canyoneering community and friends and family of people who were in the film. Yeah, it was great. I felt really supported. I was just really happy. And people seemed to genuinely like the film. For the initial screening and subsequent screenings, people would come up and they'd just be like, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't think that was going to be that good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is It is a It is a very enjoyable movie. I have shared it with a lot of people. People, one of the things I can say, I've shared it with people who have never heard of Scott Sweeney, don't know shit about canyoneering, and they've all enjoyed it. You put it together very well, and you chose a very, what's the word I even want to look for here? It is accurate to refer to Scott Sweeney as entertaining. But there's something else beyond that about him. He's just a very intriguing character. People always want to know more about him. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, there definitely is something about Scott. And that was one of the main things for me to make the film is like, this guy, this guy deserves a movie. The, The real rock guys like they don't they don't know who this guy is and scott you know for those listening that don't know scott he doesn't really make a big deal about the stuff that he does or the stuff that he has done he's never really sought out to make a name for himself but he's extremely accomplished and he is extremely competent but he has taken a lot of his whole career is filled with an exorbitant amount of risk that he's taken and he's for the most part managed to pull everything off that is one of the most intriguing things about scott i can't believe that he's still doing a lot of these things and he's still alive and he's in his 70s and he's in his 70s but most people are just in awe that he's still alive that he hasn't managed to fortunately you know like yeah he hasn't killed himself i think it's quite likely that he has explored more of death valley than any other human being yeah i would say that's i would say that's correct yeah because he has established i don't know what the current number is i feel like a few years ago the number was like 250 canyons in death valley so it's probably higher at this point i wouldn't be surprised if it's approaching 300 canyons or something yeah at the time i did the film there were about 250 canyons that had been done in death valley and he had done the vast majority of those my hope for you and him is that at some point in the future people will go to the visitor center in death valley and there will be you know in their displays a display about scott swaney and in that display looping will be your movie. That is my hope. Well, thanks. I I hope that happens too because I have a version of the film that I've put together where all the swear words are taken out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there aren't that many really overall. No, there's, there's the not. One is a gag, so if you lose that one, you, you kind of yeah. lose the gag. But if anybody needs a copy of First Descent without the swear words, contact me. I have it. I can provide it to you. Well, I do want you to tell people how to get a copy of First Descent. But first, I think the more important question is, after the premiere, what did Scott say to you? I think he just said, wow, that was really good. (laughs) 
I didn't expect it to be anything much more, but but we had to know whether he liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, he had he had never he didn't watch the film before the premiere. He saw it when everybody else did. Uh, yeah, I go up and announce the film and intro myself and and Scott and we watch the film. So I go up on stage later and right after the film is done and, and I ask Scott, I'm like, hey, so what'd you think? Do you like it? <laughs> <laughs> and he did, fortunately. It would have been really funny and embarrassing if he didn't. I mean, he got a movie out of it. Of course he liked it. It was a good deal for him. So how do people see this movie? Uh, just go to firstdescentfilm.com. It's, I think it's $3 to rent. And then if you, wanna, if you like the film enough to, to buy it and download it, I think it's, it's $8. And that's through the website uh, Vimeo. But yeah, just go to firstdescentfilm.com. So I highly encourage everyone listening to go to firstdescentfilm.com and at least rent, at least rent if not purchase. Is Vimeo bringing you big bucks off of this? Oh, no. Still haven't even <laughs> broken even. When you break even, let me know. Yeah, well. We'll, uh, we'll have a party and we'll spend even more money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I'm still waiting to break even on anything I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Including and, this podcast. And that's just for what I spent in gas driving out to Death Valley and the money that I spent for for permission to use some of the music. And uh, that's not even anything near my man hours that are, oh my gosh, I, I didn't even want to calculate what the man hours were going into that. So, uh, But it was something that I wanted to do, and I feel that it was a film that needed to be made. And I'm really glad that I made that film. Of course, it's not perfect to me, but I'm happy with how it turned out. And people seem to really like it. I mean, people still come up to me. And, I have and witnessed that. The, I've witnessed you film. meeting people you don't know who say, oh, you're the guy who made that movie. I really, really liked it. That had happened uh, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always really thankful when that happens and just been really blessed that it's a movie that people have enjoyed. Hopefully have found it inspiring because you know I find Scott and his story really inspiring too and I hope other people can get that as well. It had a bit of a festival run too right you got it into a few festivals didn't you and you even got to bring Scott to one of them I believe? Yeah we got into a festival Lookout Wild Film Festival out in Chattanooga Tennessee so we flew out there for that uh, we were able to screen the film that was actually pretty funny because um, one of the things that the film does is it goes through Scott's different activities and their stories associated and most of the stories associated with his different activities, uh, you know, like cave diving is one of them, and his underwater submarine, which, which is what you mentioned earlier, that's another story. And there's, you can say that there's an element of sketchiness to uh, most of these stories. During the course of the screening, you could just hear groans and laughs from different areas of the audience to just be like, oh, those are the cave divers, they get that joke. Those are the rock climbers. They get that joke. So that was that's always funny to see uh, how audiences react to the film. So now that you've completed that one and it's been a few years, I know you're interested in making more adventure films. So what's the plan there? Well, I've been doing a lot of rope access work the past couple years, which has kind of taken me outside the film industry a little bit. And at this point, I'm still interested in continuing to make films. I'm just really waiting for the right project to come across. You know, with that thing with Scott, it was just one of those things. It just really had to happen. And it was the right thing at the right time. I've done other little filming projects here and there, but I haven't found anything yet that I've really connected with. So I'm looking forward to finding that thing and to get going on another one. Hopefully it'll be a little easier than First Descent. <laughs> <laughs> This is my prediction. 
It will both be easier and harder. Part of it will be easier, and then in some other way, you'll try to be more ambitious and make it harder. That's my that's my prediction. Yeah, I think that's how it goes with the creative process. Yeah. So you did mention rope access, and that is something I do want to talk about because you are one of the first people to be on this show who does rope access work, and I don't think I've talked to anyone prior about it. So tell us a little bit about that. What is rope access work and what do you do in that field? Rope access, it's industrial work at height. It can be difficult to explain to people because they're like, wait, you're doing what exactly? Because it's not a trade that people really see very often. Rope access is basically a form of being paid to be a climber. Uh, But instead of climbing rock, you are climbing Generally, you're climbing steel structures. There is a lot of different utilizations for rope access. It's basically industrial work at height. So it can be done in industries like the wind industry, in oil and gas. It can be used in areas of construction, uh, particularly in like arenas and sports stadiums. Basically, anywhere that you need to have work done in an area that is hard to access or maybe too expensive to access. It can be much more feasible to get a couple people in place who can get to a difficult to access area on a rope versus, you know, maybe getting people on a crane or a really big boom lift or something like that. It opens up a lot of areas to get work done. So so tell us a little bit about like what kind of heights we're talking about. What a day looks like for you. Like for instance, I know you've worked on a variety of different things, but a lot of the work you've done is on wind turbines or what is a lot of people would think of as windmills. So what does a day look like for you when you work on a wind turbine? The blessing and a curse about being a rope tech is you get to hang out all day. And that is great and it can also be extremely exhausting. But one area that I've worked in pretty consistently as a rope tech has been the wind industry, uh, working on wind turbines. Mostly, most of that work is doing repairs on the fiberglass blades of the turbines. Now, those will usually get stressed and cracked over time. Sometimes they can have uh, manufacturing defects. Again, this is a great utilization for rope access. You could either pay a whole team of people to, to winch a platform all the way up there, or you could just bring in a team of two rope techs to deploy some ropes and then do repairs on the area of the blade that need to be repaired. What's nice about that line of work is it's pretty easy to find that work, and you get to go to some really interesting places. So I've traveled all over the country working in wind all over the midwest i spent a lot of time in utah i've been up to upstate new york uh, up to michigan uh, so many places going to wind farms and and working on those it can be exhausting though because you're hanging out in the sun it's nice because you're on rope and and sometimes the weather can be great uh, but other times it's just hot and you're just cooking there in your harness grinding on a turbine blade. Unless there's like some sort of proprietary info you're not supposed to share, let me know. But I do think for a lot of people, they're really curious what that's like because they don't know what it looks like inside that thing. Like I know I've talked to you a bit about it and how you've talked about going inside the blades and how you're having to mix chemicals and send them up to people. I'd love to hear about some of that stuff unless you're not supposed to talk about that to the general public. (laughs) No, there's... uh, Because I think there's there's a little bit of how does this work that that people would find interesting. Yeah, there's there's not too much 
top secret stuff that at least I'm aware of uh, when it comes to wind turbines. Another thing that's great about rope access is you have to come up with all these ingenious little tricks to get your job done, right? Taking wind, working uh, like on a fiberglass blade, as an example, uh, you have to send materials up to the person who's on blade. So you'll have a person who's doing the repair on the blade, and then you'll have somebody who's doing ground support. And the person on ground support, it can be grunt work kind of to a degree, kind of depending on the day. That's actually, it's grunt work for both people, let's be honest. You have to have little haul systems to set in place to get tools and materials up to the person on blade. And it can actually take a little bit of time to figure out the most efficient way to do that. So once you kind of learn all these little tricks, you can actually work pretty efficiently that, that way. Now in regards to the towers themselves, they're pretty cool little machines. You really do have to be careful because they can be pretty dangerous. You know, the older that a tower gets, the more dangerous it just becomes because things tend to just break over time. So you can get up to certain platforms and they can just be completely covered in hydraulic oil there is no traction at all hydraulic oil is extremely slick and it can also be really dangerous if you need to rescue somebody out of uh, out of a wind turbine you have areas that have that hydraulic fluid it can actually become really really difficult but they're cool little machines uh, well they're not really little a lot of them are pretty big but they're cool things to work on and there's a whole process that we're trained on as far as de-energizing the tower uh, we have to climb the tower, we get up to the top of it, we have to do what's called a lotto, a lockout and tag out, where we basically pin the blade uh, that we're going to repair in the downward position, and we lock everything out to where it doesn't move when we go to get out on the blade, so then we can safely deploy our ropes and get into our working position and do the work that, that needs to be done. And a lot of it is just kind of wash, rinse, repeat. You know, a lot of it you're just kind of going through the same motions every single day. You do the same thing every day. You, you pin the blade, you climb the tower, you pin the blade, you rig your ropes, and you go out on blade. And after a little while, you know, it takes about the same amount of time. Another thing in working in that line of work is you're contending with the weather a lot. So I got really good at reading weather apps and figuring out what the weather is going to do. And it would change all the time from site to site, from state to state. It's like you're always learning something new. And every time you think you start to know what's going on, get taught that you really don't know what's going on. So it was nice to always be learning new things. Yeah, and you are going to work on objects that are intentionally placed in places that get a lot of wind. When you're working on them, sure, they're locked off and everything, but I imagine there's still probably a fair amount of wind that comes through time to time while you're up there dangling or inside these blades or various other things. And I'm sure you can feel the motion of these towers while you're working on them, right? Yeah, absolutely. If it's windy and you're out on the blade, it you will definitely get uh, bounced around a little bit, um, especially if you're working lower on the blade towards the tip, it will really kick around. Once it gets to a certain speed, once the w once the wind, once it becomes too windy, then basically you, you can't work anymore. And then you have to either wait for it to die down. And if it doesn't look like it's dying down, then you just pack up your stuff and head back to the hotel uh, because there's really nothing else that you can do. I've had times where I've been up the top of the tower for hours and hours. You just get used to like the swaying motion of the tower rocking back and forth to the point to where you don't even notice it anymore. And for some reason, 
it's always in the shower when you get back to the hotel and you'll just be standing there in the shower and you will just you'll just be swaying side to side and you're just like am i still in this tower i have no idea what's going on it's it, it's it's funny always in the shower it's the boat thing and the roller skate thing where you take your roller skates off and you feel like you're still roller skating you get off a boat and you feel like you're still in a boat yeah yeah uh, I guess for some reason for me, it's just uh, in, shower in the shower. Related. Yeah, in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> so what sizes are these turbines? Like, What, are we, what sizes are these towers and these turbines? The ones that I worked on, the standard size, or 80 meters, uh, is kind of the, the standard size. I have worked on towers as large as 100 meters. Everything in the wind industry, it's, it's all in meters. I think it's just because... The, the origins of that industry are in Europe, and so everything just comes over. So all the measurements are in meters. Even we do the wind speeds in meters per second as well. Roughly 250, 330 feet and, you know, everything in between. So you're comfortable at heights. You've spent a lot of time at heights. But I'm sure the first time you went out on one of these turbines, it is a unique experience for you. It's not the same as descending a canyon. It's not the same as climbing a multi-pitch route or something. So was there a bit of intimidation and a, was there a, um, a period where you had to get acclimated to what it was going to be like working on these? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's pretty intimidating the first time when you're rappelling out over a nose cone of a wind turbine. It's a little different type of exposure that I was used to with being on a climb or rappelling off of a big drop of, in a canyon. And by that point, I had done an extensive amount of canyoneering and still like a good amount of climbing, and uh, it, it still made me nervous. It still took a little bit of getting used to for that. And then rappelling down to the area of the blade that you needed to, and then we would set up our, our ring line, which would basically, it's a little length of rope that kind of holds us onto the area of the blade that we need to, to work on. And yeah, it, it takes a little bit to become comfortable. Uh, we have everything tied off, but you're still always worried about something falling until, you know, you kind of get comfortable into your work rhythm and you kind of get your processes down. And then it's easier to relax a little bit more. And you start picking up on all these little tricks as far as how to not feel so uncomfortable in your harness that you're sitting in for hours and hours and yeah just all different kinds of things like that so let's talk a bit about like crossover skills and training so you're coming from a lot of roped skills when you got into rope access did you feel like you were able to catch on pretty quickly and like there was a lot of crossover or did you feel like oh things are so different in here and then vice versa were you able to have you been able to take skills from rope access back to, you know, just your regular recreational pursuits? Yeah, that's one of the things that I love the most about the different activities that I have learned is that there is a good amount of crossover between what I learned in caving and then what I've learned in canyoneering and what I've learned in rope access. That's one of the other reasons why I'm so glad to have the background that I have with uh, with caving. What I learned in the SRT ropes practices through the grotto has been my foundational rope skill, period. It hasn't been what I've learned climbing. It hasn't been what I've learned canyoneering. It's been what I have learned as a caver. Everything else has grown from that. Everything that I do in rope access, I mean, it's it's a lot of the same techniques that are done in caving. Now, they're expanded on a little bit more because there are safety requirements and there are backup lines and there's just, there's, there's additional safety measures 
on the rope access side of things, but a lot of the rope maneuvers are based in what I learned as a caver going to SRT rope ropes practice. A lot of things that I learned as a cannoneer was also an extension of what I learned as a caver, like going into a canyon and then being able to ascend out of a canyon, ascend up a rope if, if, if a rope gets stuck or if somebody leaves something out. Uh, the top of a drop. Um, I've had to do that several times. Those skills have served me well. Being able to bring in skills from one discipline into another has been extremely beneficial. So yeah, uh, when I started working as a rope tech, that really gave me confidence in a lot of other in a lot of other areas in regards to caving and canyoneering specifically. Uh, just because now, I mean, now it's now my job is to manage ropes and to keep people safe and to just be on rope all the time. I like that. I, I like how that has all kind of come full circle from where you started out in caving and then it's kind of looped back into everything else that you've done, but then also the rope access work you've done. I think that's kind of like a, a beautiful evolution of like your abilities as a person. And then interestingly enough, to a certain degree, kind of all goes back to you doing urban exploration <laughs> as, as, a, as a college kid. And then here you are back in man-made structures, but this time, you know, they're not abandoned. You're just helping maintain them you know, until far in the future when we do abandon Yeah, them. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah, I've thought about that, and it really has come full circle. It's like, I'm like, man, if I was an urban explorer, I would, you know, as an urban explorer, I'd love to be up on a tower, but now I don't have to try to find some sketchy one that's abandoned. I can right. actually get one that's much safer, on. and I can actually get paid to do this. And, you know, and and wind isn't the only area that I've worked as a as a rope tech. Um, I've done a lot of work in sports stadiums, and I just wrapped up a really big job out in Las Vegas on the sphere that has just been completed. And I was out there for a long time, eight months in Vegas working on that project. So, um, yeah, rope access has taken me to a lot of great places and has got me involved with a lot of good projects and introduced me to a lot of very talented rope techs who I'm learning things from constantly. And that's another thing that I am really thankful for with the progression through these outdoor activities that I've had is that I am constantly amazed with the level of skill and talent of the people that are around me. I am constantly learning things from people in every discipline, in caving, in canyoneering, in rope access. I am always being taught by people who are better than me. It's inspiring, and I absolutely love it, and I hope that I can be a person who will be able to hand those skills off to other people and be able to inspire other people and be able to properly train and teach and keep other people safe as well. So I don't know if this is just coincidence or that, or you can sense that we're getting close to the point where we need to wrap up because I feel like you're bringing things full circle and you're and you're summarizing things for me already. So before we finish up, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? I'll probably really have an answer for that about 10 minutes after we uh, wrap all this stuff <laughs> right, up. Right, right. Well, uh, you have to come back for a follow-up episode because I'm sure there are plenty of things we didn't discuss that we could have discussed. No, I think we, uh, I think, I think we hit all the marks. So then the final thing I always do, and maybe you're aware of this, is I ask you if you have a final thought you want to leave everyone with. I forgot you did this. <laughs> <laughs> My final thought for right now is to, if there's something that you are inspired to do, learn how to do it. 
as I said, I've always been around people that are that are further along this journey than I am, and I'm constantly learning from them. So always put yourself in a position where you're not the smartest person on the team, that there's always somebody more experienced than you that you can learn from. And I think that's a good way to stay safe, first of all. I also think that's a really great way to stay inspired and to uh, just keep that thirst for knowledge and experience going. And it's also surrounding yourself with beautiful people in my experience as well. I'm not going to make any arguments with any of that. I think that's a great final thought to leave everyone with. I want to thank you for meeting me out here in the dangerous haunted forest of Altadena, where we heard a very scary bird that may have actually been a corpse with a distended jaw. But we have safely been recording for an hour and a half and as long as nothing terrifying happens in the next 10 minutes we'll be back to our cars where we can safely get home away from this dangerous dangerous wood yeah whose idea was this So if you're listening to this show, I know that you know that hydration is important. But hydration isn't just for super active activities. We need to stay hydrated all the time. I bet that when you are at work or when you're on a long road trip or you're traveling across country or across the world and you're spending a lot of time in airports, I bet you're not hydrating yourself enough. So yes, we know that hydration is important. It's important at all times. And that is what Liquid IV is here to help you do. And Liquid IV comes in a bunch of delicious flavors, 12 to be precise, including things such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, lemon lime, pina colada, watermelon, strawberry, passion fruit, and it goes on. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. And you want to know why? It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, vitamin C. It has three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks, made with quality ingredients, non-GMO, and free from gluten, dairy, and soy for anyone with any sort of dietary restriction. But here's the thing that I think I like the most about Liquid IV. They are dedicated to equitable access to clean and abundant water across the world. So they're partnering with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in over 50 countries around the world. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code GOPODCAST at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code GOPODCAST at liquidiv.com. And now it's the part of the show where I invite you all to go to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 112 with Justin Pugh. And there you will find photographs of Justin in action and links to everything we talked about in today's show. And also an embedded video of the trailer for First Descent. And if that piques your interest, and as a listener of this podcast, I don't know why it would not... 
then I encourage you to click through and watch the full half-hour film. It is a very worthwhile experience and a good way to spend your time. And while you are there on our website, I'd like to remind you about the Help Out section where you can find a number of ways to share this show, including the Media Kit, where you can find audio excerpts and other things you could upload to your own social media. Also, our YouTube page is beginning to grow, and I hope you all are subscribed to it. And if not, please take a moment to click through to our YouTube page and subscribe. And in addition to all of that, should you want to contact us here at the show, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can always email us, jason at gogetoutside.com, or you can send us a text or leave a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And of course, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you use. Make sure to subscribe to the show and please rate and review it and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. Next week, we'll have another bonus episode. This is something new I'm trying out in conjunction with Ranger Ted of Wonder Outside. It is a project we're calling Hometown Explorers, the Wonder Outside 3x3 Challenge. You can listen to it here in your feed, or you will be able to watch a video version of it over on our YouTube channel. So keep your eyes and or ears peeled for that episode next week. And we're hoping that it can be the beginning of a new series that a lot of people could participate in. And then, of course, a week after that, on February 16th, we will have another regular episode featuring Jane Fontana and Mark Fitzsimmons. They are backpackers, canyoneers. They live in the Angeles National Forest. They are foragers of mushrooms and a variety of other plant life. And on occasion, they could be known to help rescue Boy Scouts from flooded rivers in the middle of the night or to stumble upon corpses in the wilderness. So come back February 16th. Jane Fontana, Mark Fitzsimmons. See you then. Woo!